Welcome to the Collective Impact Forum podcast, here to share resources to support social change makers working on cross-sector collaboration. The Collective Impact Forum is a nonprofit field-building initiative and online community that is co-hosted in partnership by the nonprofit consulting firm FSG and the Aspen Institute Forum for Community Solutions. In this episode, we're sharing a deep dive discussion on the topic of participatory grant making that was part of this past spring's 2021 Collective Impact Action Summit. In this deep dive, we explore what is participatory grant making, how is it different from more traditional approaches to philanthropy, and how does this approach shift decision-making power to communities, putting them in charge of funding the solutions they want to see. Participating in this discussion is Bonnie Chu of the Social Investment Consultancy, Melanie Kawanachu of the Disability Rights Advocacy Fund, Hannah Patterson of the National Lottery Community Fund, and Meg Massey of Sandsburg, who is co-author of the book, Letting Go, How Philanthropists and Impact Investors Can Do More Good by Giving Up Control. Introducing this discussion is my colleague, Sherry Brady. Um, it is my pleasure to turn it over to the moderator for the um, for the first panel that we have on participatory grant making. That is Hannah P- Patterson. She's senior portfolio manager at the National Lottery Community Fund, which is responsible for distributing funds raised by the National Lottery for charitable work in the United Kingdom. Hannah. Hello, everybody. I don't know if you can see me. Has that worked? Ah, perfect. Hello. Um, I'm Hannah. Um, I'm not actually moderating today. Bonnie's um, Bonnie's leading the charge for us. Um, hi, Bonnie. Um, so she's going to take it away. Great. Well, sorry for the confusion. Hi, everyone. Um, my name's Bonnie. Um, I'll be moderating. Uh, Hannah is on the panel um, as one of the other panelists. And we also have Melanie. Um, uh, if you can spotlight Melanie, that'll be great. So uh, welcome everyone. It was really great to uh, have that introduction from uh, from the team around centering equity and participatory grant making is definitely one of the many ways that you can center equity in grant making. So uh, I'm Bonnie Chu. I uh, run the Social Investment Consultancy and have been supporting many foundations um, around centering grant um, equity in grant making and also implementing participatory grant making. Uh, I'm, I'm really moderating and teasing out the expertise from my two panelists today. Um, there will, I'll also be drawing in uh, Mac Macy uh, later on, um, who's just published a book today about participatory grant making and how funders can be letting go. So Mac, if you want to paste that link of your book, I'm sure uh, people would love to see it. And um, we'll also be hearing uh, from Mac a little bit uh, later on around her experience and what she's heard from many funders and um, experts that she's interviewed. Um, but just to frame the session a little bit, um, participatory grant making, uh, you can define it however you want. The, it is an evolving field, so uh, the definition is also evolving. But just to frame the discussion for today, um, a definition that we'll be providing uh, is from Grant Craft, uh, which has published a really good manual on participatory grant making. Uh, it is essentially to seed decision-making power about funding, including the strategy and criteria behind those decisions to the very communities 
that fund is aimed to serve. So it is really about the entire cycle, not just at the very last moment when you have all the grants shortlisted that you just uh, get a community to basically rubber stamp it, right? It is about the very beginning, how you set up the grant, uh, what you look for, um, what you define as success. Uh, there are other terms like community-led philanthropy, and it, it also intersects with um, other movements, whether that's feminist philanthropy and um, uh, anti-racist philanthropy. So, you know, this is really all around kind of equity and how we shift power back to the affected communities. Uh, so what we're going to talk about today, we'll talk about the principles of participatory grant making, we'll learn about how participatory funds are designed. We want to make this interactive. Um, so please do put any questions you have in the chat. And I know Sherry will help me kind of glance through the questions and I'll try my best as the moderator as well. Uh, but of course, if you also have your experience that you want to share, please do put it in the chat and we can see if we have time um, to for some of you to also share uh, your experience in the next uh, 55 minutes. So to introduce my panelists more formally, um, Hannah is um, already, Sherry explained a little bit her background. She's also a Churchill Fellow and she's done quite a lot of research in participatory grant making. Uh, and Melanie is currently the Learning and Evaluation Manager at the Disability Rights Fund, which is a very much a pioneer in participatory grant making. And Melanie leads monitoring, evaluation and learning across 20 countries. So I'll kick off now our panel discussion. Hannah, what attracted you to participatory grant making at the first place? And tell us more about that fellowship, which sounds really interesting that you got to travel all across the world to explore participatory grant making. Yeah, um, so I kind of fell into funding. Um, I, it was not a planned career move. Um, I started off working in disability rights in the UK, uh, particularly looking at how uh, disabled students can uh, improve and better their education in further and higher education, so universities and colleges um, in the UK. Um, and from that kind of like background and being a disabled person, like really um, focused on uh, the mantra of the disabled people's movement, which is nothing about us uh, without us. Um, and I brought that kind of lens or ways of thinking into uh, grant making. So when I arrived in grant making, it was a bit like, oh, this is an interesting space. Um, this is an interesting way of doing things. Um, it's quite top down. Um, there's a kind of like uh, a limited understanding of communities and how they were impacted by funding um, and I started to explore and develop a funding program for the National Lottery Community Fund um, looking particularly at funding uh, leaders with lived experience so people with first-hand experience of a social issue who then use that to create change for others um, and as I started to design this program I thought well I really shouldn't be the one that's deciding what should get funding or how it should get funded and started to explore different approaches to um, co-design and collaboration and participation in the development of kind of strategies and funding programs um, and then decision making, which kind of led me on this uh, merry little um, uh, adventure uh, into participatory grant making. I spent a lot of time kind of trying to understand what what this this thing is um, that it's very difficult to say and spell um, so I've had a great time writing about it for the last few years um, but it was a really interesting way of like uncovering a load of practice that kind of 
I think in the past has sat very much on the sidelines of philanthropy and the way that different organizations do it and and over the past kind of five years has really kind of galvanized and um, and developed a lot of traction so I ended up being very very lucky in doing a Churchill fellowship I spent two weeks in South Africa with the other foundation who are an incredible uh, funder supporting lesbian gay bisexual uh, trans and intersex people in the 13 southern African countries learning about their work and their model which was um, absolutely incredible um, and then I spent several weeks kind of um, uh, I don't want to say flitting because that sounds too, um, but moving about quite quickly across the US. So um, I spent some time with Disability Rights Fund. Um, I spent time in San Francisco, um, uh, New York, Washington and Boston meeting about 40 different participatory grant makers across the US, understanding what their models are, what they're doing, how they're doing it, um, with a hope to bring back some of this learning uh, to the UK and impact the sector here. So that's my little weird journey through participatory grant making. Right. Thank you so much, Hannah. And now you are also coordinating this kind of movement, right, uh, of people trying to do this. You have 80 or so people in the Google groups now. Can you tell us a bit about that? Uh, yeah. So I came back from my Churchill Fellowship and one of the outcomes of that fellowship is that I have to produce some form of report, which is great. But I am not a report reader um, or necessarily a report writer. Um, but I pulled together kind of like information about what I was doing. Um, I can share that in the chat. But I kind of thought, actually, if this is about changing the way that philanthropy works or introducing kind of a different approach to different people than a static report that is nice that some people might read that sits on the internet probably isn't going to be the method in which the world changes. Um, and also like this space is messy and confusing and exciting and sometimes a bit difficult and it's really really nice to have other people um, who are working in this space to talk to so March last year we started with a with 12 people on a webinar basically being like oh are you doing part of I'm doing part of should we make friends let's do some parties about making together um, and we are now up to 320 members um, we meet monthly with an average of about 80 people um, at those meetings um, you are more than welcome to join us we love more people getting involved um, we have an active Slack group, um, an email list. Uh, we are in the process of developing a website. Um, so it's a lovely kind of collection of, um, of, yeah, of people coming together, sharing challenges, successes, um, picking each other's brains, sharing information, advice, guidance. Um, it's really, really nice. So if you're looking at this space, uh, do shout and we can add you in. That's fantastic. Thank you so much, Hannah. Uh, I'm sure you'll get lots of uh, new joiners from this session today. Um, so turning to you, Melanie, um, could you tell us a bit more about the Disability Rights Fund um, from kind of how the organisation has evolved around you know, thinking and practice of participatory grant making? Sure, Bonnie, happy to do that. And thank you again for the opportunity to share um, how the whole organization thinks about participation. Um, I'm gonna share a little bit about the UN Convention on the Rights of Persons with Disabilities to frame um, the Disability Rights Fund because it has helped, um, be, it is a fundamental part of the work that we do um, as participatory grant making has been a part of, of the Disability Rights Fund from the very beginning. Um, 
because the fund was structured to help support the implementation of the UN Convention on the Rights of Persons with Disabilities. So this is a UN Convention that was adopted in December of 2006 by the UN General Assembly. And by the time it was ready to be um, open for signatories, about four months later, there were 82 signatories on the convention. And this is the highest number in the history of UN conventions that have been um, signed um, on opening day. And it's been one of the fastest ratified treaties. And so there's something particularly um, universal about disability rights. I think once a conversation has started, um, around disability rights that people don't necessarily see it as a bipartisan issue. And yet persons with disabilities are often not making decisions about their own um, living spaces, about their own rights. Um, and so this, Bonnie had mentioned sort of this basic principle, um, this well-known, that's become actually a rather well-known phrase, I think in many circles, that started with the disability movement in Southern Africa several decades ago, and that's nothing about us without us. Um, I think Diana Samarison, who's our founding director, is also on the call. I just wanted to give her a shout out as um, joining us today. So Diana um, worked with activists and funders to, ve to develop the participatory grant making model at DRF. Um, and as Hannah's um, report points out, so we have a representative model of participatory grant making, which means that persons um, who are not necessarily from the target communities that we're funding are making decisions on the grants. Um, but the fund, Disability Rights Fund, was launched in January of 2008. And one of the first main activities was the meeting of what we had at the time was called a global advisory panel. And 75% of those um, panelists were activists um, of diverse disabilities, geographic, gender, and representation, um, and some bridge builders from other human rights movements. Um, and so along with the steering committee that acted as um, the Disability Rights Fund decision-making body um, that operated to help us make decisions on grants and the strategy until DRF um, got its own 501c3, 504 uh, status, which is US tax code for being able to provide grant funding for a variety of activities. And the steering committee um, eventually became the body that we call now our grant making committee. And that has a majority of persons with disabilities, as well as institutional donor represent, um, rep representatives. Now, some of these donor representatives are there providing inputs um, on how we develop strategies at the country level and the global level, but they don't all actually have voting power, um, but all the disability activists do. In the first year of the fund, um, going back to sort of the history, um, at that first meeting at the Global Advisory Panel, um, activists gave us content and gave Diana content on what would eventually evolve into our grant making guidelines, our requests for proposals, and um, how we do outreach. And um, there was an intentional strategy to put donors and activists together in those bodies from the very beginning. This is not actually a typical model for donors and activists to share decision-making power. And we can sort of talk about that a little bit more later if folks are interested in um, what that looks like. Um, because there was 
very little interaction between the donor community and the disability community, um, many of whom were being brought together for the first time as the UN Convention was being written. Um, there's sometimes, you know, an inherent uh, sort of structure um, when you bring donors and activists together that can create an imbalance of power. So it's been really critical for the Disability Rights Fund staff and the board and each member of the grant making committee to address those power dynamics, um, both in the meetings and then how we structure um, input and how the fund itself is structured. Um, and just to sort of fast forward a little bit to 2008, when a decision was made to shift even more decision-making power to the grant-making committee from the board. So the grant-making committee are the ones that are reviewing our grant recommendations, the grant-making guidelines, country-level strategies. Um, and so shifting that final decision-making power, which again is one point in the process of participatory grant-making, to the grant making committee away from the board was another way to um, restructure and think about how these power dynamics were playing out. And in the midst of that shift, we also increased the number of activists on the grant making committee and on the board. Um, so participation, those as you both have pointed out, is, is baked into not just the board and the grant making committee, but also in the intentionality of hiring and what our hiring processes look like. So persons with disabilities um, are on our staff and especially program officers who are the main liaisons with the disability communities on the ground that are receiving grants. And as the Disability Rights Fund grew, uh, DRF, as we call it for short, moved away from having international program officers who were responsible for whole regions of grant making um, to hiring disability activists from the national target movements themselves. And we've heard a good deal of feedback from our grantees on how critical it is that their program officers are persons with disabilities. And um, we're doing some early research now as well, um, looking at do grantees, um, does it matter to grantees if board members and grant making committee members are also persons with disabilities? Um, and they are, grantees are telling us it does matter, that they feel seen, they feel heard, they feel that their lived um, experiences are going to be represented even more so. Just briefly on the measurement side of things and then I'll, I'll wrap up. Um, is that there's been much more investment in recent years, and I think even this panel and this conversation is testament to that, in the broader philanthropic community, um, really trying to dig in and um, understand and document the benefits and challenges of participatory grant making and the different models that exist and that are open to people and available. Um, and I'd say, you know, part of this learning is at least at the Disability Rights Fund was an investment even in a learning position. So before we hired um, other staff, um, the learning role was was brought on early on. So I've been around for about four years, um, right before actually my daughter was diagnosed with some neurodiversity herself. On a side note. Um, so we currently have a grant from the Ford Foundation, along with eight other coalitions of researchers and participatory grant makers 
who are again examining the benefits and the challenges. And Hannah, we, I just need to point out, is on our research board and helping to provide us with um, direction on how do we actually look at our representative model and answer the question of whether or not um, the participatory grant making structure actually helps to influence our proven effectiveness and efficiency. Um, the Disability Rights Fund has contributed to almost 250 national and local legislation, policies, and programs that um, have been advocated for passage to be disability inclusive by disability activists themselves. And we think that that's a fantastic achievement. I'm gonna stop there, but happy to answer more technical questions later as well. Great, thanks so much, Melanie. Uh, there's a question for you, which we can turn to a bit later uh, about just kind of the technicality of what you just described. Uh, but I, I certainly think when you spoke about not just uh, representation in terms of uh, persons with disability, but also your move uh, from international program officers to national program officers. Um, I mean, there's so many dimensions if we are being truly participatory that we need to think about. And, you know, I talk a lot about intersectionality and just have to think about all these different dimensions of, uh, of oppression and structural oppression and how we can truly be representative and participatory. It's not just, you know, you, you do one thing and that's fine. It's really a continuous journey. So thank you for sharing that evolution. Um, and on that impact measurement note that you ended on, I just want to turn to this um, idea or, or this trend that I'm seeing. Everyone, you know, once something is trendy, then start saying, oh, we're participatory or we're equitable. So do you actually see any risk of uh, participatory grant making washing? And if you can actually tell us how do you truly hold funders to account to what they say they do? Hannah, do you want to start? Yeah, I've been I've been mulling this over quite a lot because I think as the practice starts to develop and people um, get really involved in participatory grant making, I think there is a real concern that lots of um, lots of people in the space um, might be like, yeah, we're doing participatory grant making. It's a great way to pat ourselves on the back and kind of feel better about kind of inequity that lives within our kind of societies and daily lives. And I think a lot of it is is always returning back to the principles of participatory grant making and what is meaningful participation, what is passing power um, and shifting that to communities. Um, how do we provide agency to decide what does that look like? How can people um, take that? Um, and I think I, it, is, it has been playing on my mind about how, how do we start to define this or provide kind of parameters in which people are working to um, so that people aren't just saying that they're doing stuff when actually it, it is very extractive or quite tokenistic. I don't think we understand that. And I think we're kind of, I'm definitely grappling with it quite a lot. Um, I think part of it is around like the transparency that funders have around like where do decisions sit and and what does that look like particularly um i think there's a difference between um organizations like disability rights fund or red umbrella or um, um 
many of the other participatory grant making organisations who were set up as participatory grant makers so their governance, the way that they work is much more um, embedded in those values comparatively to more traditional funders who are then trying to pivot their work and what does that mean and recognising that that's quite a difficult journey for a lot of funders like I work in a very traditional organisation um, it's quite different because it's public money so um, the money that I distribute as part of my organisation is uh, from the players of the National Lottery in the UK. So we're governed by government. Um, our governance structures is set out in law and in kind of guidance from, from government and we're accountable to the, the public purse. So there's rules and regulations there that are much more tricky to navigate or change than um, maybe other philanthropist organisations will have, particularly if they're set up as a participatory grant making. I think recognising it as a journey of change and like where can you embed participation in that process um, helps us all to move along the journey but how do we stop people using that as an excuse or, an, or a kind of like we, we've done it we're at this point and how do we continuously reflect on how do we do this better um, how do we continuously unseat ourselves how do we continuously um, engage and, um, and and more than that distribute power to communities to create the change that they want to see but yeah I'm thinking about it loads it's it's playing on my mind <laughs> Thank you, Hannah, and I'm sure your commercial practice of uh, close to 400 strong now will emerge something that can be shared with the field. Um, and Melanie, just on the point uh, around impact measurement and more investment into evaluation and learning, I mean, how do you ensure that um, at the RF you are holding yourself to account to those principles you set out? Mm -hmm. I mean, I think the challenge is that any measurement process is how to connect an action with ripple effects, right? And in a social setting, it can be expensive or even harmful if you try to isolate one action and try to measure that and hold everything else in control. And so there's, there's no, that's not different for measuring the impact of participatory grant making. Um, but I think what one can do is to ensure that um, you're including the most marginalized persons in your research group, in your evaluation sample, and making sure that you are asking um, the communities that are benefiting from your engagement whether or not they actually think um, they are being heard and doing that in a way um, that um, makes them feel safe to be able to provide real responses. And so do you control for response bias? Do you allow for anonymous feedback? And how often do you do that? So at the Disability Rights Fund, one of my colleagues um, leads an annual grantee survey that we do and have been doing for more than 10 years, um, asking how we're doing what pieces can we change? And this is the first time that we've also asked them for their opinion about whether or not they think the most marginalized groups in the disability movement in their target country um, has been more engaged. So we've, we've found that out through our evaluations. You know, every social movement has hierarchy and structures, right? And that's just something that as you're engaging in participatory um, grant making, if you're gonna shift the power, if you're gonna let something go, you have to actually acknowledge there's a power imbalance first and be real and open about that. Um, you can't get around that, that sometimes uncomfortable conversation. Um, but we need, we decided this past year that we needed to ask grantees of how they thought they were being included even in the, the margins of the disability movement. Um, and it's, it's been some interesting data that we've been finding over time. 
Um, and we also look at um, asking our grantees, for example, and our donors some harder questions. Can we have our grantees be the ones decide um, in reflecting more participatory evaluation approaches, um, they will decide the evaluation principles. You know, we do feedback loops where we translate, um, most recently our evaluations were uh, translated into lessons learned for our grantees. So evaluations and learning tends to be from the commissioner of the evaluation, um, and it doesn't necessarily answer how our grantees can benefit from some of these lessons learned. So um, we took our 80 page evaluation reports, whittled that down into four pages, and then also made that easy to read as well. And so an easy to read document is a document that's written specifically for a person um, who may have an intellectual disability um, and allows a, a more distilled um, version of, of concepts and along with pictures to help that and facilitate understanding. Great. Thank you so much. I, I think, yeah, you spoke about uh, just different concrete things that we can do to actually measure um, how we are doing as funders and whether we're holding ourselves to account to those principles. Um, and Sherry, I think you've pulled up a few questions from the chat. Do you want to post them? Sure. Um, Here's one. One of the someone in the audience has asked. Um, they have found that a lot of times act, activists get sort of um, critical about who's in the room, and they find that when they're embedded in the decision-making process, they have less time to continue sort of doing the work and engaging people on the ground, and they get more distance from the community. So, how do you sort of compensate for that on some level in your work? If you continually have them as a part of the process, that's great. Are they? Um, and how do you sort of help with that piece of it? Is that a question? Do you want to take um, that? I think it's either, I think it's either sort of, I think it's one of the things that folks, as you think about participatory grant making, um, how do you make sure that you sort of shake up who the activists are in the room and you make sure that you're not having them spend all their time sort of making decisions about grant making versus doing their work? Because that can be just as, I think, uh, confusing and disturbing and disruptive as yeah. other kinds of And then of you turn into foundation staff. And exactly, then, and then you turn into foundation staff. the whole staff. thing turns around again. <laughs> exactly. Um, uh, Diana has um, mentioned in the chat that Disability Rights Fund have terms um, of service for those decision makers, but there are lots of different models of participatory grant making. So one of the models that we use for our Leaders with Lived Experience program, uh, we've chosen because we want to strengthen an entire sector. So the way that we do it is that we have, um, it's a continuous um, program. So there are, there are numerous rounds. So um, after the first round of funding, uh, we put funding into 20 organizations um, between 20,000 and 50,000 pounds um, worth of funding over a year. Um, all of those organizations, that cohort of 20 grant holders were invited to be the decision makers for the cohort that followed them. Um, and we decided to make that decision because we wanted not only to put money into the sector, but also to help those organizations understand what else is out there, who else is, is, um, is working in this space, what are they learning from the process, how are they improving their grants as they move um, forward, how does that then improve their sustainability and allow them to access more funding as we move forward. So the process in itself of, of participatory grant making 
is just as important as the end result of where the funding goes and how do you start to think about actually what capacity building comes out of this what networks what's the magic that happens when you bring people from different spaces together to talk um, and kind of deliberate on those there's been a couple of um questions that kind of all centre around this idea of kind of like activists in the room and like what does that mean um conflict of interest conflict of interest is something that comes up all of the time um and I think it's a fascinating conversation because what does that actually mean um and and, and I think you often put communities together and just in participatory grant making where they know the sector but that's kind of the benefit of it because they know the sector they can work out actually I can't work out when I end up with a grant on my um on my desk you know you know we work really really well with the traveler community I have no idea whether that's true or not I can take it at face value but if you bring a community together and have that discussion they can pick through what actually is reality and what's not and and, and what we find which I find fascinating and I don't know if you guys find this in, in other spaces is that through a participatory grant making um, process, um, the decision making is actually much more rigorous. People are um, they they will they will pick apart an application. They will understand the context. They will understand when something is fudged a little bit or using some nice language that sounds nice on paper, but actually doesn't result in kind of like actually being connected to communities. Um, there are also some really interesting models of participatory grant making um, called closed collective, where you'll bring together all of the applicants to collectively make a decision about who should access funding. Um, how do they kind of see what's there? So for ease of my maths brain, if you've got 10 organisations all applying for funding and 100,000 on the table, those 10 could all leave with £10,000 and that would be nice but through the conversations they might decide well actually my my project is probably not as strong as other people here I'm going to take myself out of the process or I've said I want £10,000 but actually I could probably deliver for eight and I want to put two back in or we're doing the same project let's combine and reduce our costs or you've put an application in for a safeguarding policy and the rewriting of that well we can help you do that for free or you know all of this stuff that happens through the conversations the money almost just acts as bringing people together to collectively decide what is important to communities what creates change how do we do that collectively how do we think systemically about what this funding can do and where it can go and um, there's a lovely quote from Jamie Barn at the uh, University of Minnesota Minnesota University I don't know which way around that goes um, somebody from there will probably be very 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 sad that I said the wrong thing but that university um, who says the quote uh, participatory grant making is like ballet you can describe it as much as you want but you'd never really experience it until you see it in practice um, and I think a lot of this stuff comes up and you go what about this what about this you know but actually when you see it and realize that it's not just communities going I want to fund all my friends um, and they're actually saying this is really important because I know what this means like I know what this grant means to my community the impact that it can have it's not just a number on a page you know I'm still very invested in the fact that £20,000 is a really big grant whereas I think as funders you get to a point where where you're like mm, twenty thousand pounds here, twenty thousand pounds there. That's fine, um, and it really builds that kind of like the impact of what that money can do, um, and embeds that into the conversation, which I think is really exciting and really creates some really really good decisions. Yeah, and I've actually experienced it. I've 
been part of a kind of participatory budgeting process and when you it's all online and you see what other people's proposals are and while I think all of us will have our own ego or we put up our project we wanted to get funded uh, as part of this group but once I look at other people's projects I then think actually their projects are better I want to use my budget to fund them and and it's no longer about me it's about us as a collective and that's also part of the beauty of participatory grant making that your identity is not just me as that activist having this idea but actually us going through this process together and us having this vision all together um, and it does take some reimagining of grant making because grant making has been uh, for so long you know this competitive process this funnel that we have to distill down to the top last five or ten but actually you know this it's just a different way of thinking so I, I just want to share that Hannah when when you were sharing that experience and almost also flipping some of the ideas concepts we take for granted in grant making like conflict of interest I mean why don't we flip that on its head yeah this some it's fascinating we did our latest round of our leaders of lived experience program um and having community decision makers the level of chat and discussion is like next level stuff that you'd never really touch on because you always just focus on kind of like what is the governance issue what is the budget whereas actually the conversation centers on like what is important what are the values what is this and actually through that discussion what we what the collective decided so there was a, a group of about 13 decision makers we had um, disabled um, lived experience leaders who were there um, and engaging and continuously bringing up this application in youth work or LGBT rights or, or race. It doesn't accommodate access needs like it's not accessible. It's not accessible. It was a continuous uh, critique of the applications that were coming through. And the group decided that actually instead of spending the entire budget by adding an extra three projects in, what they would do is they would take that last um, last five percent of the budget and give every grant an uplift so every grant added an extra six thousand pounds to their um to the to the grants that we gave them in order for them to um improve their access around how they would engage their beneficiaries what their work would look like how do they make sure that disabled people were included in whatever work they were doing in whatever space and it was only through those kind of collective deliberations and continuous challenge from those um those decision makers that that decision or that thought would have come through like that wouldn't have come from us as funders because we just wouldn't be on our radar we wouldn't thought, think about it so bringing in those different life experiences different opinions different geographies different backgrounds like yeah it's a, it's an incredible space for magic to happen that's so cheesy and um, I'm, I'm gonna stick with it <laughs> I don't think it's cheesy and I mean I think um if I could just say that you know we all have uh, processes in place where if you're on a more traditional funding model that you may not realize addresses a lot of these basic questions on how things get done and those processes are developed in time over time probably based on a set of principles and a set of values that you have and so participatory is the same you're going to develop processes there's going to be progressive realization you're going to see the benefits and I think to Hannah's point, the amazing amount of rigor that does need to go into decision-making processes and vetting, um, especially when I think participatory grant-making as a model is still considered risky. 
And if you're giving to um, underserved communities who them themselves have been marginalized from many things and then they become risky um, groups to fund as well. And so you do put a lot of rigor in, in place and it's probably not that different from mechanisms that are already in place in traditional funding, but it hasn't been thought through in the same way. Um, and it's great to be asking these questions. So I, it's part of um, being more participatory, thinking about where the power lays and then shifting that away is asking these questions. Great, thank you. One more question is coming in from the chat which is around the practicality. So if I can summarize the three questions that speak to similar things. So what are the practical steps for starting a participatory grant making process? Um, do you compensate them for their time? Um, and how long does it take to actually kind of manage or facilitate this type of the process? So yeah, practical steps, but with a focus on, on compensation and time it takes. I mean, I always advocate for paying people for their time and wisdom because um, that's a good thing to do. Um, particularly if you're a funder sat on a large operational budget, um, share that wealth. Um, um, otherwise it's a bit extractive. Um, there's loads of different ways to do it. And actually this conversation comes up over and over again. I get asked, I had like a month where I got asked by about 30 different people, how do you pay people? Um, and I think that context is different depending on how you're working and where you're working. So in the UK, a lot of that conversation is actually about if you're working um, with decision makers who are unemployed um, or accessing funding through kind of government benefits, paying them can knock them off those benefits. How do you be really, really careful that paying somebody a hundred quid to do a decision-making doesn't then end up in their rent not being paid, um, which is slightly more complex than possibly the US um, system where those benefits might not necessarily um, exist or enact in, in a different way. Um, sometimes it's asked as a bit of a red herring um, and as a bit of like, not, not quite sure about this, how do we do it? Um, but I mean, pay people, that's good. Um, the time thing is a really interesting and really difficult question to answer because it depends on the process that you design um, and where you bring people in and what you're asking them to do. Um, if you have the, the opportunity to design that process, you can design to kind of the time frame that you want. So I've seen some parties through gut making, uh, so our Leaders with Lived Experience programme, um, our decision making was six weeks. Um, I mean, it nearly killed some of our staff, uh, but but it was quick. It was it was it was um, it was a speedy response from applications closing to money going out of the door. Um, others, it's a two three year process of really building that relationship with communities, uh, getting to know what what they need, what is important to them, and design. So it's a complete array. Um, when I launched my Churchill report, I did a load of webinars um, and one of those was particularly on the operationalizing um, of participatory grant making. And I can put the link in the chat for anybody that's interested in it. Um, if you have questions about the logistics of participatory grant making, as Diana says, the community of practice is a really lovely place to start. Um, our next meeting is coming up on um, the first Thursday and first Friday of May. Um, we have two meetings, but they run the same agenda, just in different time zones. And my time maths is awful. So the Thursday is 5 p.m. till 6.30 p.m. in the UK time. I'm not sure what that is, wherever you are. Um, and the Friday session is 8 a.m. till um, 9.30 a.m 
a.m. UK time, whatever time that is. So you can pick which one suits your time zone or diary. Um, and the session is on this next session coming up is on peer support. So we'll be in small breakout rooms around issues, topics, things that you want to discuss, things that you're stuck on, things that you want to celebrate. Um, so, yeah, do feel free to uh, let me know and we can add you into all of that because it's lovely. Great, thank you so much. Um, Melanie, any practical tips that you want to share as well? So I think um, I agree. People need to be compensated for their work, not just um, for their time, but for their travel as well. And is for the disability rights fund, that also includes then providing um, payments for people's sign language interpreters or their tactile interpreters or their personal assistance that they may need as well. And then making sure that those people that are supporting them are not overworked. And so if they need two sign language interpreters for a two hour meeting, then you need to get two sign language interpreters and to pay those costs. And so, and that may, um, for some participatory grant makers, then they provide travel funds, even if you're coming from a different part of the city. And so all of those costs should be compensated um, and be thought through and be budgeted for. Um, Yes, I think I'll, I'll, I'll stop there. And I think that there has been some great work with Mama Cash making this transition. Um, Katie Love is particularly versed in this work and, and the more folks will become familiar with participatory grant making, the more her name and her leadership will pop up and, and her work around that. I think she, she worked with Mama Cash to develop that. Um, and then I would say um, the last thing on the practicality is to re-emphasize this lens on intersectionality and that recognizing that marginalization um, and disenfranchisement and, and systemic ways of that happening becomes further pushed the different sort of shared identities that people have and multiple identities that they have. And so it's critical to think about um, how someone's again, gender, and disability status um, might overlap and how you represent that in your decision-making. Thanks so much, Melanie. Well, I'm sure more questions will come in in the last uh, 15 minutes or so that we have, but I want to draw in Meg, because Meg, you, you just published your book today. Uh, well, can you tell us more about your book and if you can highlight your top learnings from funders who have really taken that shift to letting go and shifting power? Yes, absolutely. Um, thank you so much, Bonnie, and thank you to everyone for being part of this conversation. Uh, the book is called Letting Go, How Philanthropists and Impact Investors Can Do More Good by Giving Up Control. And I co-authored it with Ben Robel, who works at Village Capital, which is a nonprofit that does peer-selected investment. And we wrote the book about both uh, philanthropy and impact investing because we wanted to look at the dis different decision points that funders make when they're deciding how to support uh, social causes. And um, on the participatory grant making side, the three decision points that we identified were where community could be brought into the process were number one at the theory of change. So as you're thinking big picture about what your, um, what, you, what issues your foundation wants to address, what problems you want to solve with a particular grant making program, how can you make it, communities a part of that. Uh, the second point is on building a pipeline. So that, um, and at that point, that's looking at how you source, uh, source grantee applications and thinking more expansively about that, um, not going back to the same 
um, often more well-funded, um, larger, more well-resourced organizations just because they can put, maybe put together the, the best application, but really thinking about who's doing the work. And then third is on vetting and voting, which is where, um, where people are, community members are helping to make those funding decisions. So those are the three points where we identify. And I would say that some of the, I think the biggest thing that we learned, and it's already been said in this discussion, is that the process really is the point. Participatory grant making is not a thing you do once and then never stop doing it. There's no end to it. You are constantly iterating. You are trying to bring you know, voices in the room that haven't been there before. You're looking at who isn't at the table. And a process, a participatory process that works really well for one grant making program may, you know, not work well two or three years down the line. So you make changes or it may work great for one program, but the exact same way won't work for another. So there's just so much iteration and conversation. And what comes out of that conversation is trust. I think that's the biggest message that we um, that we want to convey with the book is just the importance of trust and that trust comes from building um, building relationships with people, holding yourselves accountable, holding your grantees accountable, but really walking the walk. Um, I'll end with one story and then um, hand it back off to you, Bonnie, but um, there's a, uh, the Brooklyn Community Foundation. They instituted a participatory grant making process in one of their programs. And with the way that they're structured, the, um, there are community members who voted on who received funding and then their board still had final sign off. And the first couple of years, it was they it, they considered themselves a rubber stamp. And then in I believe 2017, one of the recommended grantees was an organization that was fighting for um, more affordable housing in a real estate development that a lot of residents were concerned about. Um, it turned out that the real estate developer was um, had a was a funder. Um, had given money to Brooklyn Community Foundation, had close relationships with people on the board. And it was a moment where everyone held their breath. And then the board said, no, we're still signing off on this. And that seemed to be a real, not that would to me is a really good illustration of how to, um, how to make this more than just words, right? It's that they had an opportunity to do something that was in their financial interest and they chose to commit to what they told their community. And so for all the um, leaders on this call who are trying to think of ways to implement this, I would, you know, think through, okay, how, what do my grantees need from me? How do I build that trust? How do I build that trust and how do I demonstrate it in ways that they'll see? So I'll stop there, but thank you. Great. Thanks so much, Meg, for that great example. And yeah, I'm sure many of us will be looking forward to reading your book as well and learning from more of those funders you have uh, been able to interview. Um, and I think your experience, kind of uh, what you talked about involving um, people really from the beginning, uh, involving them in the strategy, that also speaks to one of the questions I didn't get to earlier, uh, whether you invite participants to prioritize needs prior to inviting proposals versus involving after proposals have been created. I think what I'm hearing is that it, it should be really from the very, very beginning before you design any criteria. Um, so that would be true participatory grant making. There's also um, another question that has come which is going back again a little bit into the practical side um, but 
whether perhaps Hannah or um, if you can have a go first, uh, has a truly participatory grant making process meant you have had to extend timelines or do fewer initiatives? But I think actually underpinning that question does speak to some assumptions people still have around participatory grant making that it might mean we're giving up something. But yeah, do you want to speak to that, Hannah? Yeah, I find this stuff really fascinating because we I often get asked, like, does it take longer or is it a shorter process to traditional grant making um, on the assumption that somebody's measured how long it takes traditional grant making? So it's a really difficult question to answer because some uh, organisations and funders will spend 50 hours on one grant application looking at that and a participatory grant making process might be much shorter or less intensive. Others might look at an application and decide within 20 minutes whether it's a yes or no and therefore a participatory grant making approach will, will take longer. Um, I think there have been points in the work that we've done where we've extended timelines of deadlines based on um, on communities and how they're involved in the process. So one of the other funding programmes that we have at the National Lottery Community Fund is the Phoenix Fund, um, which has been an incredible uh, piece of work, not led by me in any way, shape or form, but uh, Shane Ryan, who's now left the organisation, um, Kieran Lewis, and then on top of that, a, a huge number of incredible Black-led um, organisations in the UK, so Ubelli and um, Yvonne Field, Valjeet Sandu, um, loads of, of organisations that have come together and basically told us what they want from the funding. Um, and it's been a very, very different way to the way that we usually work. And it's taken a bit longer. It's been evolved about kind of like decision making. Um, but ultimately, our, our organisation, because of where the money comes from, um, we can't necessarily sit on budgets our budgets have to come in at the end um of the financial year either five or uh, percent below or above where we were we were budgeted on there's no there's no turnover there's no reinvestment into an endowment um, so there are timelines that we have to keep to and that's a bit of a balancing act and a lot of that is around how do you have that as meg suggested that trust um within the process to be kind of really open and honest with individuals about like this is where we can wiggle this is where we can't wiggle this is how we can do this how this is where we can extend and reduce and this is what this means and how do our staff then step up and maybe reduce sometimes in different places where do we kind of where do we flex and move and and, and develop around around communities yeah and i think one one thing about participatory grant making also is your panelists the people making the grants will have much more urgency than actually the people currently making grants now so they want the money to get out of the door as soon as possible and diana um has kindly shared also an example of rapid uh participatory grant making that was implemented during covid so thank you diana for that example um melanie do you have anything else to add otherwise we'll we'll wrap up because um yeah the brick is coming up soon Thanks. Now, I just wanted to um, echo Meg's point about bringing persons in from the communities to develop um, a theory of change. And so I'm just going to paste um, a screenshot of our what we call our pathway to change. It's our theory of change at the Disability Rights Fund that was developed by activists um, that we found to be incredibly effective because activists have known for decades where the pressure points are that need to be pushed and they know what's effective and um, where their voices need to be heard and where they've been excluded. And there's no one else that's gonna have that better experience and expertise to provide for us. Um, and you know, I also wanted to echo Hannah's point about what do we know about how effective grant make, traditional grant making is. Um, 
clearly we still have challenges in this world that haven't been solved by traditional philanthropy and um we have a lot of evaluations out there that talk about harm that has potentially been done um, when groups are continually marginalized um, and in that space uh, and in that way again harmed again when they're excluded from decision making processes i'll answer um, so two other points that at the Disability Rights Fund, um, our grantees do provide input on where advocacy priorities need to be year to year over. Um, we bring grantees together to grantee convenings and they tell us there's a, you know, maybe a mental health act that is not disability inclusive, that is not rights based, that's looking at mental health from a more medical model versus a human rights model, and that needs to be funded. And so that becomes um, you know, a priority that the movement galvanizes around may you know, come together and decide that they provide a coalition on. Um, and then the second point that I wanted to make as well in terms of um, time it takes for even grant making processes, that really if we're talking about um, funding communities that again have been marginalized you actually probably and hopefully have in place even in traditional philanthropy a process of accompaniment with potential grantees with your applicants and our program officers um, are often spending anywhere from one to three years working with, with different organizations of persons with disabilities talking about um, what pieces need to be in place for applications to be successful and then our funders have become more flexible over the years to provide that funding. And so if you do need a safeguarding policy, as, as Hannah had mentioned, or if you do need um, bylaws for your board, and those are things that you will commit to do over a period of time, we'll be able to work with you and fund those pieces, right? And so barriers um, should not be in place because organizational um, requirements haven't been met and hopefully regardless of how the decision making model is happening that that partnership is already happening and um, so and I, hopefully that's that's not any different in participatory grant making great thank you so much um well thank you hannah melanie you've uh, shared so many great insights um i think a few things i've taken away from this i mean the first thing is um participatory grant making is not hard uh, there are lots of things that we can learn from people who've gone before us just to try so uh hopefully many of you will join hannah's community of practice uh the google group so you can continue to learn more and i think secondly we have learned so much about um, um, how traditional grant making um, actually is falling short and it helps us just reflect on, you know, some of the questions we ask of participatory grant making, like the time it takes, the resources it takes, conflict of interest, are we also asking the same of traditional grant making? It just really holds up a mirror to us to reflect on even our current practice. Uh, I'll, I'll now hand it back to uh, Sherry just to, uh, yes, yeah, say anything else from the organizer's perspective, but it's been a great pleasure just having this discussion. So thank you for having us. And this closes out this episode of the Collective Impact Forum podcast. If you're interested in learning more about what was discussed, you can find links to resources in the footnotes for this episode. We would like to acknowledge that this episode was produced and edited on the unceded traditional lands of the Coast Salish people, including the Duwamish, Suquamish, Stoquamish, 
and Muckleshoot tribes. We honor with gratitude the land itself and the past, present, and futures of these tribes. The intro music for this episode is composed by Raphael Crooks, and our outro music is composed by Kevin McLeod. Our big news this month is that we just opened registration for our upcoming Champions for Change 2021 online workshop. Champions for Change is designed specifically for those in the early stages of their collective impact work. This year's online workshop will be held over three weeks from September 21st through October 5th, 2021, and will feature a mix of weekly online sessions and virtual office hours with faculty. And the big plus for online workshops is that all the sessions are recorded, so you won't have to worry about missing a session. You'll have access to them all. Check out more about Champions and register for this year's workshop at collectiveimpactforum.org. And if you're interested, we recommend registering before the early bird rate ends this August. This is Tracy Timmons-Gray, Associate Director here at the Collective Impact Forum and your podcast host. I want to say thank you so much for listening, and we look forward to connecting with you more in the next episode. Until next time, we hope you are safe and well.